Well, children may be dismissed to junior church, ages three through six. Every one of those songs, if you notice, was full of gospel truth, which is what Romans is all about, especially the introduction to Romans that we're going to get to today. So I want to read the introduction for you this morning, Romans 1 through 7, and um, someone astutely observed that we're just getting through verse 1, and I said, it's a long runway, all right? (laughs) Romans has a long takeoff, but eventually we'll be airborne, but you can't rush it, right? So look at the first seven verses here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved in God, uh, of God in Rome, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." You know, if you like history, perhaps the greatest administrative genius of all time was Caesar Augustus. Uh, on Caesar's deathbed, he said, I found Rome built of bricks and I left her clothed in marble. And that was absolutely true. If you read about his life uh, when he was young and not you know, completely in power yet, uh, Rome was just this splintered, fractured group of tribes with all this civil war and infighting and then various dictators, and it was a rather uh, miserable place to live. And then Caesar Augustus slowly and somewhat brutally climbed his way to power, and then when he did, he basically, through his administrative genius and through his power and through his own might, of course, under the sovereignty of God, created one of the most stable and long-enduring empires of all of human history. Um, Some of the things that he did, he balanced the emperor's uh, power with the Senate. He instituted a highly efficient, ingenious tax system so he could tax everybody, so he would have the money to build this grand empire and all the administration that it required. Uh, He had a military genius. His military virtually squashed all the opposition, creating this very unusual, pervasive peace called the Pax Romana, the uh, the peace of Rome. There was just, it felt like there was no warfare anywhere. It was just a peaceful empire to live in. Uh, His Roman soldiers were so highly trained, they acted as a very strong police presence, and sometimes we've seen that with certain presidents and politicians come into power, and they increase the police presence, and what happens? Believe it or not, crime goes down. It's safer to be places. And so Rome suddenly was able to enjoy safety in travel, safety in commerce. The economy began to explode. Universities began to pop up all over the place. Learning advanced. And someone said that after the fall of Rome, it would actually take the West a thousand years to get back to where Rome once was. That's how advanced the Roman Empire was. And so all this was taking, really the the foundation for this was laid by the great and mighty Caesar Augustus. And in 1899, 
there were excavators excavating in the city of Prien, which is a, a western sort of, back in those days, it was a Greek city that was in um, western Turkey. And they're ex- excavating there in Prien, and they discovered what is now called the calendar inscription of Prien. And in this calendar inscription, it is basically an edict that they are going to change the calendar. Now imagine that, the next president saying, hey, I know you're used to this 12-month calendar, and you got all this stuff in your head, we're going to totally change it, and we're going to change specifically the new year. The new year is going to begin in September 23rd, because September 23rd is the birth of Caesar Augustus. It's the birthday of Caesar Augustus. So they were going to change their whole calendar just to show how grateful they were to this incredible emperor that had brought such peace and such order to a chaotic land. And this calendar inscription reads like this, since providence, that's capital P, they're referring to their, their God, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she, because they referred to their deities as she, she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as Savior for both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. That's pretty impressive. (laughs) He is so good that it's impossible for anyone in the future to be better than Caesar Augustus. And since the birthday of the god Augustus, was the beginning of the, and here's why I'm reading this, good tidings, the evangelion, or what we would say the gospel. Since his birth was the beginning of the gospel, or good tidings for the world, that came by reason of him. So amazing accolades for quite an impressive emperor. And so what we're going to see is that Paul and the apostles, they take this term gospel that had been applied to the greatest emperor of all time and was applied in other contexts to talk about glorious victories and glorious reigns and the joy that, that, that those reigns bring, the joy that the victories bring, the people who delight in the benefit of that. That's what they mean by gospel. They're going to take that word gospel and they're going to apply it to Jesus Christ. As if to say, Well, yes, Caesar Augustus, he's a very impressive person. However, (laughs) Jesus Christ is far more impressive. The victory that he has accomplished is far more grand. The empire, the kingdom that he has constructed and he is constructing is far more vast and his gospel is far more powerful. And they're going to take this term and apply it to Christ, and rightly so, because within a few centuries, the city, the city of Rome, the the Roman Empire was going to fall, and now we read about it in the history books. It's ancient history, but there's no one here who is a citizen of ancient Rome, right? There's no one here who, you know, vote for Caesar Augustus. No no more loyalties. They're they're gone. We, We read about it in the history books. But we here are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and there are churches a town over that are citizens of Jesus Christ, and a state over from coast to coast, and then all over the world and every nation under heaven 
you will find citizens of Jesus Christ who are loyal to Him, who are loyal to His kingdom 2,000 years since His feet have physically tread on this earth. Why? Because His gospel is superior to Caesar's gospel. (laughs) His gospel, His good news, is far more potent than any good news any humanity has ever heard of or any reign that they have delighted to live under. The gospel of Christ is far more superior. So it's like the word gospel finally finds it the reason it exists in the work of Christ. And so that's really what Paul is going to, right out of the gate in the opening seven verses, just hammer home is the significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the first seven verses of the book of Romans is an introduction, but it's almost barely an introduction because it is so much more than an introduction. I mean, Paul in Romans writes the longest introduction to any of his epistles. It takes him a full, you know, six verses to even get to grace to you and peace. And that is because he is basically front-loading this introduction with gospel gunpowder. You know, if he is, if he is loading up for a really good letter <laughs> and he is jamming that gunpowder in, most of what's going on in the introduction is just telling people why he and his apostolic calling is connected to the gospel. So that's his goal. His goal is to introduce himself to the churches of Rome because he had never physically been there, so he wants to introduce himself. More importantly, he wants to introduce his apostolic mission, his apostolic calling, his office. But his name and his mission mean nothing apart from the gospel that drives him. And so that's why this introduction is so long. I mean, imagine introducing yourself to someone and you can't even get past your introduction without sharing the gospel with them. Paul is just bleeding everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, amazingly, the first word that Paul uses to describe himself is not apostle, We would expect that because that's an incredibly powerful office. The first word that he uses, first title, is bond slave. He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, some translations have servant, and the Greek word here is doulos. It's most literally translated slave, and some translation has servant, but you kind of lose the ownership factor of servant. A slave, the first thing you think about with a slave is a slave has a master. You don't You think of a servant as serving someone, but you don't necessarily think of the master factor. But with a slave, you know that the slave has a master. But there are some people who are uncomfortable translating it slave or or bond servant, putting that bond therein, because what we think of as Americans, we think of early American, African-American slavery. And so we think of misery, we think of something that should have been illegal, and so some translators say, I don't know, maybe you should just keep it servant. But you have to, I think it's better to keep it a slave, but don't think of early American slavery, because that's not when Paul wrote the book of Romans. Think of Roman slavery. And Roman slavery was entirely different, where if you were first century Rome, if you were the slave of a dignitary, so to speak, you could be of higher rank than a free, common Roman citizen. You might be a, a free man, a common Roman citizen, but if you encountered the slave of a Roman dignitary, that slave would be of higher rank and more powerful than you. And there are stories in the history of Rome of, of slaves actually becoming you know, emperors and dignitaries. 
A slave, depending on who his master was, could really live a life of luxury. That really couldn't happen in early American slavery. But it happened all the time in the Roman Empire. And so it was a totally different situation, but still and ultimately a slave in Rome was a slave, which meant he had a master. He was owned by someone. And that really is what Paul is driving home here, that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He is owned lock, stock, and barrel by Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not like Paul's the only one to use this title. Peter, Jude, Titus, James, all of them, when they open their epistle, they call themselves doulases, the slaves of Jesus Christ. It's just a, a common title that the loyal apostles and followers of Christ wanted people to know them as, I am, I am bought with a price. I'm a slave of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.20, a couple verses on being a slave of Christ. Paul says, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You've been bought. You're purchased. You haven't been saved to autonomy. You've been bought. You belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So when Paul is using this slave terminology, he's communicating to the Corinthian church, there is not one toxic drop of personal ambition in my ministry. Me coming to you is not a career move. (laughs) Me being an apostle is not to advance my name. I am bought by Christ. I am a slave of Christ. I exist to do His bidding. That's the first thing He wants them to know. Now, slave is not the only lens through which we look at ourselves in the Christian life, okay? We shouldn't just go around and just the only way we see ourselves as slaves of Christ. It's very appropriate if you want to think of yourself as being owned, right? I'm owned by Christ, which I think, by the way, that's a great weapon against the lust of the flesh. You want to follow your heart, you want to follow the lust of your flesh, you just remind your flesh, you are not your own. You don't own yourself, you're bought with a price. Be, be God's slave, live for His glory. But there's other lenses in which, besides slave, that we are to view our Christian life. It's interesting, in John 15, 15, Jesus says this, this is John 15, 15, talking to His disciples, He says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So Jesus had received so much truth from the Father, and He had revealed so many mysteries and so many secrets to His disciples that He's saying, you know, it's in this context, if we're talking about closeness and intimacy and, and sharing personal information, it's better to think of ourselves in this particular context as friends. Now, that doesn't, it's not an irreverent term. We're not going, yeah, God's my BFF and, you know, have this casual, unholy relationship. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, I've disclosed all secrets to you. And that's, isn't that what friends do? Friends bear their soul to each other. So, you're still slaves because you're owned by me, but you are also friends. And then we can look at all the other titles in the Bible. We're also called the sons of God. There's an adoption aspect. So we're not supposed to just limit ourselves to one of these titles, but it is very interesting that Paul, the first most important title he wants people to know about himself is that he is owned by Christ. He exists to do the will of Christ. It's interesting, Galatians 1.10 Here's something kind of liberating about being a slave of Christ. Paul says, 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be called a bondservant or a slave of Christ. If you really embrace that by faith, my only master is Christ. It's a wonderfully liberating thing to wake up every day and say, the only person I really have to please is is Christ, right? He's the only one I'm going to be held accountable to. So this was a very liberating thing for Paul to experience. You know, being a slave of Christ is incredibly countercultural. Our, our culture is under the delusion that we can live autonomously and independently, and we can, we can be beholden to no man. And actually, Paul says that it's totally a lie, it's totally a fabrication. He says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So you're obeying somebody, and whoever you're obeying, even if it's your own sinful heart, I'm going to follow my heart, then your heart's your master, and you're the slave of your heart. You're going to be a slave of somebody, he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. So salvation is simply switching masters. You're not going from autonomous freedom to now being a slave of Christ. Or you're not going from, I'm a slave of my sinful heart, a slave of sin, to autonomous freedom. There's that silly Christian song that I hear once in a while on the radio, free to be me. (laughs) Sorry, that's not why God died on the cross for you. You are freed from the wages of sin, the pains of sin and death, to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is way better than free to be me, whatever that means. (laughs) To be free to live as God intended you to live. Um, under his glorious kingship. And so, you're, you're a master to someone. Uh, be gone the delusion that you can somehow live in some sort of autonomy and independence. You're saved from the mastery of sin and death. You're saved from the mastery of this deluded uh, philosophy that runs this world to the liberating mastery of Jesus Christ. And so, we have that But Paul wants to communicate that to the Corinthian church, that he is a bondslave of Christ. Well, he goes on in verse 1, he's a bondslave of Jesus Christ, and then he says, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So notice these two words, called and set apart. Called points to the author of the calling. Somebody called Paul, so that points to God who did the calling. But set apart for points to the purpose of the calling, right? So, the author of the calling, that's God, set apart four points to why God called him in the first place. Now, this word called here plays a huge role in the introduction. It's one of the key words of the opening seven verses, called as an apostle of God. If you allow your eyes to to just drop down to verse six and seven, Paul brings up called again, okay? He says in verse 6, among whom you are also the, what? Called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called to be saints. So on the front end of this introduction, Paul is called to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. And on the back end of the introduction, he turns it around and says, and guess what? You, Roman church, are called to be saints. So Paul's going to show them 
he's not the only one called here. It's, it's a different role. They're not called to be an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. But he wants the Roman churches to know, you're also called. You're called to be saints. And your calling is just as intentional as my calling. We all have a specific calling by God. We all have the same gospel mission. The role might be a little different. Spiritual gifts might be a little different. The, the body parts and the grand body of Christ, you might be an ear and I might be an arm or whatever it might be, but it's the same goal, right? It's the same mission. So Paul's going to tie in his calling to their calling. Well, what did it mean for called, Paul to be called? Well, called is a very specific word. Called is not a predestination word. There are predestination, there's predestination terminology, you're predestined before the foundation of the world, but called, you'll never see in the Bible, called before the foundation of the world. Called is a term that speaks to God calling a person at some point in real time in their life. So at some point in your life, we heard some testimonies this morning, Kyle and Amanda, some, some point in your life, God, even though He's predestined you and your salvation from the foundation of the world, at some point in your life, on a date on the calendar, he gives you that irresistible call and calls you into salvation. So for Paul, Paul was called while on the Rome to Damascus getting ready to kill some Christians, right? And he's called powerfully, irresistibly by the saving grace of God, not only to salvation, but also at that point he is called to be an apostle. He's not made an apostle at that point, not until later on when he's in the Antiochian church, but he knew early on that God had called him, set him apart to be an apostle, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And you see this in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians 1.15, Paul's sort of recounting his testimony. And he says, when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb, so he's getting into the, the predestination aspect. Before I was even cognizant, he's setting me apart, Okay called me through His grace. So, set me apart from my mother's womb and, separate events, okay, called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So, He called me, which is when He revealed His Son in me. And God doesn't reveal His Son in us from before the foundation of the world. He does it at some point in your life when you put your faith in Christ. So Paul is referring to that, that I think, that Damascus Road experience where God called him to be saved and to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. So specifically, Paul, right here, he's not so much talking about his salvation, even though it happened at the same time. He is talking about being called to what? Being called to be an apostle. I want to stop and talk about what is the significance of Paul being an apostle? Why was it so important for him to eventually communicate this to the Roman churches? Well, the term apostle, and there's a lot of terms like this in the New Testament, before the New Testament made it a technical term, the term apostle could be something akin to saying mailman. When you think of a mailman, you don't think of someone with great authority. It's someone who simply has been charged, you know, by the state or whatever to deliver something. So, so an apostle in sort of the normal vocabulary, the general sense, was simply someone who was commissioned by someone who had some authority to deliver a message. So it was a very general word. But what you see happens in the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that 
this term gets appropriated by the church, and it is infused with the incredible authority of the office of an apostle that God used to found and to launch the New Covenant Church. So, apostle went from something that was not really a whole lot of authority in it, some, it was a commission authority, to the most authoritative office that a man could have under God. The office of an apostle was a temporary powerful office that was meant to bridge the ministry of Christ with the first century church. These were men who were selected as, as we'll look at in a second, eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, personally handpicked by Jesus, who would go out and, and be filled with all sorts of power to perform signs and wonders, and they would be able to say, we have visibly seen the resurrected Christ. We can personally testify. We were there in His ministry. We followed Him from the days of John the Baptist. We are eyewitnesses. And then they would perform signs and wonders that would remind everybody of the kind of signs and wonders that Jesus performed. And they would be a solid link between the ministry of Jesus and the birth of the new church. But it was a temporary office. I know a lot of people go around today calling themselves apostles, but they are not. It was a temporary office meant to establish the early church. Hendrickson tells us something very powerful about the office of an apostle. He says, the church did not bring forth the apostles, rather Jesus Christ endowed the apostles who went forth to found the church. So you think about it. All the spiritual gifts came out of the church. The office of an apostle was established before the birth of the church. There was a time where the disciples are just called disciples, and then there's a time where Jesus starts calling them apostles. Well, now you're sent out one. Now you're officially commissioned by me, and it's from their ministry that the Spirit of God comes through them and the church is launched. So the office of an apostle was the only gift, if you will, that actually preceded the birth of the church. That tells you something. This is a very unique and very powerful office. Turn to Acts chapter 10, if you will. Acts chapter 10 and verse 40, and this is Peter, the apostle, talking, and I think he gives one of the clearest descriptions of the significance of an apostle in the early church. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 40, he says, God raised him, speaking of Jesus, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. I think he's speaking primarily of the apostles. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So look, they they also ate and drank with him after his resurrection. And by the way, they are not just having visions of Jesus. They are not just having dreams of Jesus. He is literally physically walking into the rooms, sitting down, and eating fish dinner with them, all right? So, they're able to testify to this. And verse 42, and He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So, Peter there is talking about the apostolic ministry, a unique category of people that God chose to reveal Himself to, 
to send out to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ, not just to share the gospel, but to say, we were there. We witnessed the resurrected Christ. And because of that, Jesus endowed them with amazing capacities for signs and wonders. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul can say the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. If God just expected everyone to perform signs and wonders, there would be no such thing as the signs of a true apostle. It was the signs of a true apostle because not everybody was performing at that level those kinds of signs and wonders. So uh, this, this office was just empowered with incredible signs and wonders. There are, I believe, uh, four marks of an authentic apostle that the Bible gives that we can actually see the apostles themselves use to qualify other apostles. The first mark of an authentic apostle is he must have accompanied Christ since the beginning. That is, since the days of John the Baptist, okay? So someone who had walked through the life of Christ. Second qualification, must have witnessed the resurrected Christ. Again, not just a dream or vision, but witnessed the real, literal, resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, these first two qualifications are found in Acts chapter 1 and verses 21 and 22. And at this juncture, the apostles are looking to replace Judas because he was supposed to be an apostle, and he betrayed Christ. Of course, Christ knew John 17. That, that was also all part of the plan. But he is going to be replaced by someone, Matthias, eventually. And in Acts 1.21, it says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they're saying, all right, who's going to replace Judas? Well, we we know it's got to be someone who's been with us from the beginning, from the days of John the Baptist, and it's got to be someone who witnessed the resurrected Jesus, not just yeah, the, the, the disciples told me it happened, but they've seen it with their own eyes. It can be an eyewitness of it. So there's two qualifications. Um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, Peter says to Cornelius, we, speaking of the apostles, are witnesses of these things. Okay, very unique post-resurrection witness. And then a third qualification of a true apostle is an apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ directly, personally appointed by Jesus Christ. You see this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13. And when day came, Jesus called His disciples to Him and chose 12 of them whom He also named as apostles. So, not not at the point He chose them, but eventually He would name them to be apostles. So, first they're disciples, they're followers, then at a certain point you can see in the Gospels their titles start to shift from disciples to apostles because He's empowering them and He's sending them out. You remember that? Maybe <laughs> when I preached the Gospels many years ago, there comes a point in Jesus' ministry where he sends them out on tours, basically. You're going to go ahead of me, and you're going to cast out demons, and you're going to perform miracles, you're going to preach the Gospel, and you're going to prepare these towns for my arrival. That's what the apostles were supposed to do. And then the fourth qualification of an apostle is they were to confirm their ministry with extraordinary signs and wonders. And can I just say, Not the signs and wonders that only the people who go to your church believe are happening, (laughs) but the signs and wonders that even your enemies believe are happening. That's how you can differentiate between the signs and wonders going on today, supposedly, and the signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. Even his enemies, with the apostles too, even their enemies would say things like, for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place here, no one can deny. 
You know, what's happening today is often, all right, there was a back pain and it disappeared and there was one leg that was shorter than the other and now it's longer and you just sort of had to believe that, okay, I, I guess a miracle took place. What's going on in the, in the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the apostles, is even the Sanhedrin are like, all right, these guys have serious powers. But what did they charge Jesus with? Well, he gets his power from Satan. So they couldn't deny the miracles because they were so undeniable, they just had to say it came from another source. And so the disciples had, the apostles, they had these kind of extraordinary signs and wonders. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So the signs of a true apostle, just incredible. You see that throughout the book of Acts, resurrections from the dead. Amazing. And, and, and again, it wasn't just, wow, that's pretty impressive. It is to remind people that looks just like what Jesus was doing. He was performing incredible signs and wonders, and so it was a solid link to the ministry of Christ. So it is very possible or um, popular today for people to go around and claim to be apostles, which always makes me cringe <laughs> because the more you understand the, the authority and the power and the significance of the apostolic ministry in the early church, it's just cringeworthy to hear someone say, oh, just call me apostle this or call me apostle this. But all you have to do is ask them, you know, these diagnostic questions. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't realize you followed Christ since the days of John the Baptist. You don't look that old. <laughs> um, were you personally handpicked by Jesus? Are you performing the signs and wonders, incontrovertible signs and wonders, even admitted by the enemies? Did you see the resurrected Christ? I mean, the real resurrected Christ. Have you sat down and had dinner with the resurrected Christ? I mean, these are all the diagnostics of a true apostle. Now, it is not something new that people today are claiming to be apostles when they are not apostles. That could have been, but it definitely was at the top of the list of problems that Paul had people going around claiming to be apostles who were not apostles. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, um, the Spirit says to the Ephesian church, uh, He commends them for, quote, putting to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So he's got some issues with the Ephesian church, but he said some of the good things you're doing is you put people who claim to be apostles to the test, and you find them to be false. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And so the Bible is commending churches that test for false apostles and rejecting people who falsely, falsely claim to be apostles. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, all right, I get those qualifications, but Paul did not meet some of those qualifications. <laughs> He didn't follow Christ from the days of John the Baptist. Um, how is he an authentic apostle? And so on one hand, we can say, well, as it turns out, if God makes the rules, he can make exceptions to his own rules, right? So if God wants to make an exception, he can do it. He apparently did it with Paul. Paul realized that God made an exception to his own rule for the standards of an authentic apostle. And Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. Paul says, Then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, 
to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What does Paul call himself? The one untimely born. In the Greek, that is sometimes used in extra biblical Greek literature as the surprise baby. (laughs) Do you have a surprise baby in your family? (laughs) You know, you're all stair steps and then seven years younger (laughs) or whatever it might be is this other sibling. Oh, didn't see that one coming. Paul says, I'm the surprise apostle. (laughs) You know, you know the others, the standards, why they're apostles. Nobody denies it. We all get it. And then there's me. But I was chosen by God to be an apostle. I'm the untimely born apostle. But nevertheless, Paul is still there at the start of the church. He's still there at the foundation of the church. And that's where the office of an apostle was. It was sort of that at the ground level beginning foundation of the church. You see this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... So he's talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Some say, oh no, this is Old Testament prophets. Well, all you have to do is go to chapter 3 and verse 5, and it talks again about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets who bring about new covenant revelation. So he says the church was started on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And if you notice, a foundation is not on the 8th floor or on the 21st floor. A foundation is ground level. So the apostolic office was for that ground level. You see this also in Revelation 21 and verse 14. Here's the New Jerusalem, which is a a picture of the church. It's a literal city, but it's also a symbolic picture of the church. And it says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So how many apostles, how many foundation stones, how many apostles are there? There is... 12, right? You might think, well, wait a second. If Paul was there, wouldn't that be 13? And that would be. But it could be, because of the humility of Paul, because he was a late arrival, that he's not represented. That's one theory. Well, because he was sort of late to the game, he's not represented. Or some people think that Matthias, who was chosen to be the 12 disciple, it was a mistake. The disciples shouldn't have chosen Matthias. They should have waited, and God would have said, no, Paul is supposed to be your replacement for Judas. But whatever the case, you see these 12 foundation stones, and you see clearly 12 apostles that were used at the foundation level, the ground level of the church. Just one more note on, the, on apostles. Some people will look at passages like Romans 16.7. Romans 16.7. and Romans 16.7 There are names that we do not recognize, and these people are called apostles. And so some people say, aha, you know, see, there's more than 12 apostles. But what you have to remember is that the word apostle was most commonly used in the informal sense of someone who's commissioned, someone who is sent. And so it'd be very common to refer to someone sort of informally as commissioned with an important mission, but they are not capital A apostles, you know, from the days of John the Baptist, hand-selected with all the signs and wonders and all that. And so I think when you see passages like Romans 16, 7, it's talking about people in sort of that common usage, informal sense. They're commissioned for something, but they are not part of the 12 unique apostles, or ultimately perhaps 13, you know, uh, official apostles that were commissioned by Christ. So that is an in-depth look at the office of an apostle, All that to say, the early church would understand 
that there was something incredibly powerful and incredibly unique about the office of an apostle. And it's very important for Paul, as he introduces himself to the churches of Rome, to tell them that he is an apostle. Now, look back at verse 1. Why is he an apostle? It goes on to say, set apart for the gospel of God. He has been chosen as an apostle, not just for apostle's sake, but to be set apart for the gospel of God. Now, pay attention to those two words, set apart. Paul would be very familiar with those words, set apart, because Paul, prior to salvation, was a Pharisee. And the term, the title Pharisee, means separate ones, separated, ones who are set apart. So Paul, prior to salvation, loved to refer to himself as set apart, but what was he set apart to? He was set apart to the law. He would have happily said prior to salvation, I am a holy man of God because I am set apart to obeying the law which will achieve my salvation. But now he says I'm set apart to the gospel of God. I'm set apart to Christ and His gospel that actually liberates you from the condemnation of the law. Talk about 180. (laughs) Talk about just the opposite end of the spectrum now. Before, I delighted in being set apart to the law, but then I found out that, you know, no one could keep the law. We're actually condemned by the law. Now I'm set apart for the gospel that liberates you from the law. And so Paul loves that term gospel. Now let's talk about this lastly, the gospel. What does Paul mean when he says gospel? Well, we use this term all the time. We talk about gospel music and it's a genre and all that. But gospel is actually a technical term in the New Testament. It's not a general term. It's a very theologically technical term for the good news of the redemptive work of Christ that will save and forgive anyone who calls on the name of Christ by faith. So it's a very technical term. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll see the term gospel, but it doesn't have the specific technical usage that the New Testament does. In the Old Testament, obviously the content of the gospel is there. Obviously in the Old Testament, you're still supposed to trust in God by faith that He will send a Redeemer who will save His people from their sins, But when you see the term gospel in the Old Testament, it is often just very broad. It could include the promise of forgiveness of sins for those who call upon the name of the Lord, but it's often just very, very broad. It's not as technical as the New Testament. Let me give you three examples of the Old Testament use of the gospel, and this is out of the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, so make sure we're comparing the same words here. Isaiah chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 40 and verse 9 Isaiah says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, or bearer of the euangelion, the the gospel. So Zion, get ready to be excited because you got good news coming, and the context is the second coming of Christ, the return of the Messiah. So a broad usage, Messiah's coming and everything's going to change. Another example, Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings the gospel. And if you look at that context, the primary point is the national restoration of Israel, when Israel is restored as a nation in the millennial reign of Christ. Now, obviously that includes forgiveness of sins on the cross work of Christ, but it's broadly referring to the restoration of national Israel. 
And then there's Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me, or excuse me, anointed me to bring good news or the gospel to the afflicted. Now again, this is broad. Um, The Spirit of God has empowered me to bring good news to the afflicted. What is the good news? The good news is liberation. Now Jesus quotes this and says today this has been fulfilled in your hearing because the Messiah has shown up and at the heart of the liberation that God brings is forgiveness of sins. But if you read that text, it's a lot broader than just forgiveness of sins. It's, it's the lifting of the curse. It's, it's healing. It's no more suffering. It's, it's radical transformation. It's millennial. It's new heavens and new earth. And so the Old Testament has this broad understanding of the gospel. So it's, it's broad, but it's very powerful. Just because the Old Testament uses gospel in a broad sense doesn't mean it's any less powerful. In fact, If you look at this term gospel in the Old Testament, if you look at in military contexts, almost always in military contexts, gospel means we have won the war, not we've won the battle. It's used when you hear that a king is dead, so we've totally defeated the enemy. Now, you think about the difference of that. If you're living during World War II and you hear that allied forces have won a significant victory, you're pretty happy about that. But how do you respond when... The New York Times headlines, Chicago Tribune headlines read, Germany surrenders. <laughs> the war's over. You know, the boys are coming home. Well, we've all seen pictures of it. You know, the, the uproarious celebration and people just pouring out into the streets and they're, they're delighted. They're just overcome with joy. And that is often how gospel is used in the Old Testament. It's not, oh, I got some good news today. But it's, I'm going I'm to tell you something that is so good It's going to be hard for you to keep from dancing in the streets. It's wonderful, glorious news. And so you have this concept of gospel, again, that encompasses the forgiving, redemptive work of God, but is much broader. And then you come into sort of the the Greco-Roman era, the last century B.C., first century A.D., and you start to see this term gospel, as I started the sermon out with, applied to the reign of Caesar Augustus, mighty victory, glorious reign, people smiling under the warmth of his reign, and the usage of it. You know, one lexiconographer says you could look at gospel and you could understand it to be news that makes one happy, information that causes one joy, words that bring smiles, a message that causes the heart to be sweet. That's a, that's a pretty awesome thing. Incredible victory and wonderful joy all merged together. And Paul takes that and says, yeah, that's a good term. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it its home. I'm going to give that word its home, its ultimate meaning, to be found in the deliverance and the forgiveness that is brought about by Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul ends this. He says, I've been, I've been set apart as an apostle for the gospel, and he doesn't just stick a period there. For the gospel of what? God. That's it. We call it genitive of possession. It is the gospel that belongs to God because it is the work of God. It's not created by man. It is created by God to deliver His people from their sins. And that's what we're delighted by. That's where we find our identity as Christians. There's nothing more exciting. There's nothing more meaningful. There's nothing more significant 
than being made one with Jesus Christ through the righteousness that He has accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection and knowing that no matter what happens, I am safe and secure in Christ and this life I will seek to be faithful, but I have got eternity to come that has been secured by the gospel of Christ. That by the sheer mercy of God, there was a time when I was blind and stumbling about in my blindness. I was calloused to the love that God had for me. I was foolishly believing my heart and the system of the world. And at the right time, God came in and He opened my eyes through the power of the gospel, delivered me from all that, and set my feet on the straight way to know Christ. And that gospel is unbeatable. (laughs) There's no rain, there's no message that comes close to as glorious as that is. And that's why Paul can't get past his introduction (laughs) without plumbing the depths of the gospel that we have been given in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this glorious gospel. What a shame and what a tragedy to fumble about in this world wondering what's it all about? Why am I here? What a glorious thing. No matter how many tragedies befall us, no matter how many difficulties, to know that we are safe and secure in Jesus Christ, not because of any goodness that we produce because of our works, but because of that mighty cross work by Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you truly, that you would open their eyes to the wonder of Christ and what He has accomplished, and they would truly be saved and brought into this church and discipled and maybe even one day giving their testimony in front of this congregation of how they were blind and now they see. In Jesus' name, amen.